Hello, and welcome to this episode of Surety Today. Surety Today is a live monthly call-in podcast presented by the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright, Constable, and Skeen, located in the Mid-Atlantic region. Surety Today is offered to surety claims professionals and is designed to keep you informed about important issues in the industry. Here is your host, Michael Stover. Well, welcome everyone to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the uh, Surety and Fidelity Law Group here at Wright Constable and Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. And today I'm joined by my law partner, Cindy Rogers Ware. As always, we'd like to uh, open up our episodes with a big thank you to everyone for your support of Surety Today. I was just checking the uh, the podcast, and we've had over 3,038 downloads since we started doing the podcasting part of this. So uh, we, we ask that uh, you pass along our contact information to any colleagues who you think may be interested in calling in or checking out one of our podcasts. Remember, uh, you can take Surety Today along with you on your commute and listen to one of our prior episodes from one of multiple locations on uh, Surety Today page at our website at wcslaw.com as a podcast at iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, or Podbean. Just search for Surety Today. And uh, on our microsite at suretytoday.net. We've got over four years of uh, monthly presentations, so there's a lot of content. As always, we've muted the line during the presentation to avoid any background noise. We will unmute the line at the end for any questions. Today, uh, we're going to be presenting a surety case law review and update. We'll discuss uh, recent case decisions of interest that have been issued in the past uh, several months. All right, so the first case that I want to discuss is, uh, is actually one of our own. It's Western Surety versus U.S. Engineering Construction, LLC. It came out of the, uh, the uh, federal D.C. Circuit Court on uh, April 7, 2020, and the site is 9, 955 at F3rd 100. So um, in this case, it arose out of a um, construction of a new South African embassy in Washington, D.C., uh, U.S. Engineering Construction, LLC, was the obligee on the bond, and it was a subcontractor to the general contractor on the project. Uh, U.S. Engineering entered into a sub-subcontract with the principal, United Sheet Metal, to complete certain work on the embassy project. The issue in this case was what must occur under the bond to trigger Western Surety's liability. Under Section 3.1 of the bond, the obligee must first provide notice to the principal and surety that it's considering declaring a default. If the obligee fails to provide such notice, Section 4 excuses that failure except to the extent that the surety demonstrates actual prejudice. And that'll that'll become relevant later uh, with an argument that was made in this case. Under Section 3.2 of the bond, if the obligee officially decides to end its contractual relationship with the principal, it must declare default, terminate the contract, and notify the surety. Of course, once the obligee has satisfied the conditions of Section 3 of the bond, the surety is required to promptly elect one of the remedies set forth in Section 5 of the bond, which include, among other things, arranging for the principal to perform and complete the contract, undertaking to perform and complete the contract itself through agents or independent contractors, commonly known as the takeover option, or obtaining bids or negotiated proposals from qualified contractors to tender a completion contract. In this case, the general contractor sent formal notice to the obligee 
guarantee that the principal was causing delays and that back charges would be assessed. The obligee in turn forwarded the concerns to the principal in a formal notice to correct and gave 72 hours to demonstrate performance improvement. The problems persisted and the obligee formally terminated the subcontract with the principal. Now, there was no dispute in the case that the obligee declared a default and terminated the subcontract and that it did so without notifying the surety. In fact, the obligee did not notify the surety of the default and termination until it sent a notice of claim against the bond nearly nine months after the termination occurred. The obligee simply took it upon itself to complete the principal's contract obligations without any notice to the surety. The surety filed suit against the obligee seeking declaratory and injunctive relief regarding the potential liability under the performance bond. The surety won in the district court on a motion for summary judgment and the obligee appealed. On appeal, the obligee argued that the plain language of the bond simply requires notice of default and termination, not notice sufficiently early to enable every potential option to cure to trigger the surety's obligation under the bond. In the alternative, the obligee argued that if the bond's language is ambiguous as to whether timely notice is required, the court construe any ambiguous language with due regard for the bond's purpose which is to protect the default and to avoid a forfeiture. The D.C. Circuit Court held that the A312 performance bond was not ambiguous. Addressing the timing of the notice requirements, the court observed that, quote, despite the bond's lack of an explicit timely notice requirement, the performance bond is properly read as requiring the obligee to notify the surety of the default before engaging in self-help remedies, unquote. Otherwise, the court stated, the explicit grant to the surety of a right to remedy the default itself would be operative only if the obligee chose to give it notice, thereby rendering the options in Section 5 nearly meaningless. The court stated, accordingly, because the bond expressly provides the surety with opportunity to participate in curing the subcontractor's default, we hold that it is a conditioned precedent to the surety's obligations under the bond that the owner must provide timely notice to the surety of any default and termination before it elects to remedy that default on its own terms. Because the obligee failed to provide timely notice, the surety was not obligated to perform under the bond. Turning to the obligee's argument that the surety needed to show actual prejudice in order to avoid liability, the court observed that Section 4 of the bond requiring actual prejudice only applied to a failure to provide notice under Section 3.1 the notice of intent to declare default. There is no similar requirement in the bond regarding notice of the default and termination under Section 3.2. Accordingly, the court held that we conclude that the plain language of the bond is unambiguous, that the surety is not required to demonstrate actual prejudice to avoid liability under the bond if the obligee fails to provide notice of default and termination under Section 3.2, unquote. The court also noted that even if it had required a showing of actual prejudice, the obligee's failure to provide notice under Section 3.2, in this case, robbed the surety of its contractually agreed upon opportunity to participate in the mitigation process entirely and was inherently prejudicial, quote unquote, on that. So that's the, the first case, uh, Western Surety Company versus uh, U.S. Engineering Construction and I think there's no surprise there. Uh, we, we've seen lots of cases like this where, where the obligees have simply failed to give the notice and, 
gone off to uh, to do repair work and then as an afterthought come back to the surety. Um, so I'm still checking to see if I've got Cindy with me yet. We were going to trade off. I'm here. I, okay, you're next. <laughs> <laughs> good afternoon or good morning to everyone, depending on where you're located. Um, so I was tasked at looking at new payment bond cases um, that have come out recently. And of course, one of the things that, that struck me here is simply that there have not been a lot of new decisions, uh, no doubt because of the impact of court closures due to the pandemic, uh, which resulted in, as we all know, a lot of postponement of, of motions, hearings, uh, and civil trials. Uh, but I did find a couple of topics uh, of interest uh, in some recent cases. And the first topic that uh, I saw actually in two cases that I will discuss uh, briefly is uh, a discussion about what types of damages are recoverable uh, from a payment bond surety. Uh, the first case is called McGuire O'Hara Construction Inc. versus Cool Roofing Systems, and it's out of the Western District of Oklahoma uh, in a decision that was just reached uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, on September 28th. Uh, so McGuire O'Hara was a subcontractor uh, to Cool Roofing uh, on a federal government project uh, and Philadelphia Indemnity Insurance Company was the Miller Act surety for Cool Roofing. The subcontractor and the principal had a subcontract amount uh, of $2,900,000 and the subcontractor started the work had received partial payment for the work that it performed from the principal, but then was told by the principal to stop working. Uh, it wasn't entirely clear how this stop work situation came about. There was some reference to termination for convenience, but I don't know that that was a formal term. But in any event, it seems clear that uh, the stop work order did not arise from any uh, breach of contract by the subcontractor. So when the subcontractor sued the surety, uh, it sued uh, for one claim for its entire subcontract balance uh, for the entire $2.9 million contract. And alternatively, it sought just the unpaid balance for the work that it actually performed plus lost profits. On, uh, on the work that it did not perform, and those lost profit, that lost profit claim was for about $600,000. Fortunately, you know, the court recognized that the Miller Act is really in place as a substitute for state uh, mechanic lien law rights, uh, which uh, do not allow for such things as breach of contract uh, damages. Now, in support of its position, the subcontractor had cited uh, some cases where a subcontractor had been awarded its full contract value even when that contract value was greater than the actual value of the work that it performed. Uh, in other words, you know, the, the bonded contractor had made a bad deal and had agreed to a contract value that was in excess of, of the actual value of the work. Uh, the court, however, wasn't persuaded by that argument and recognized that there is a distinction between case law where projects are completed uh, and projects where the work 
is not completed. If the project is completed, uh, a claimant is entitled to the benefit of its bargain. In other words, the agreed value of its, its subcontract, even if that value is higher than the actual value of the services uh, that are provided. However, in a scenario such as this, where the project work is not completed, um, a, a, claim, a bond claimant cannot recover lost profits or expectation damages because that does not represent a cost of the, uh, the actual performance of work. Uh, and this, this position is, is also um, consistent with the language of the Miller Act itself, of course, because that language references you know, furnished labor or material. So you cannot have, it's not furnished labor or material when you're seeking lost profits. Um, there's another recent case also from September uh, that also deals with the issue of trying to recover uh, a similar circumstance. This case, and I have no idea if I'm pronouncing the name correctly because it's got a lot of consonants together. It's Kutz, K-U-D-S-K versus Federal Solutions Group, and this was in the Central District of California, also issued last month. Um, the claimant here was a subcontractor on several uh, federal construction projects uh, and asserted uh, numerous claims against the surety, in this case F&D. Uh, there were several principles that were related entities, and in this case also involved a claim against the completion contractor uh, that the surety used on a number of the projects. Um, there are numerous uh, claims in this case, but I really was only going to focus on, on the claim for uh, lost, uh, anticipated lost projects claims that were brought for one of the particular projects. Um, on that particular project, the surety had entered into a takeover agreement with uh, the Air Force, had entered into a ratification agreement with this uh, claimant who already had an existing subcontract with the uh, principal who was no longer in the picture. Um, and then ultimately the completion contractor uh, entered into a subcontract agreement with the claimant. However, after initially getting some informal uh, statements from the Air Force that the project would go forward, uh, ultimately the Air Force halted any work on the project and it never issued a notice to proceed, uh, which is uh, the typical language that's in a federal uh, construction project, that nothing really gets triggered until there's a formal notice to proceed. So because there was never any issuance of a formal notice, notification to proceed, the work never began. Uh, nevertheless, uh, in this lawsuit, the subcontractor was seeking its administrative and preparation costs that it had expended trying to get the project moving and getting the government to issue uh, a notice to proceed and it's lost profits and argued that the surety's completion contractor had a duty to it to obtain the notice to proceed. Um, the court disagreed, said that there was no duty and because uh, there was no factual dispute that no notice to proceed had ever issued, um, and none was ever issued to the claimant, uh, there was no valid payment bond claim. 
uh, and that the uh, claimant could not recover its uh, expected uh, profits on the work that was never performed. Uh, I will now turn it back over to uh, Mike. Okay, great. Thank you, Cindy. So uh, next case I want to talk about is um, involves uh, liquidated damages on a uh, on a performance bond case, and and that was I didn't say that at the beginning, but I, I'm supposed to be sort of looking at performance bond cases, and Cindy is looking at payment bond cases. So anyway, it's the case of uh, the Hanover Insurance Company versus uh, Binnacle Development. Uh, it's actually consolidated three cases together out of the um, Southern District of Texas, and the opinion was uh, handed down on October 6th, so it's fairly recent. This case involves the enforcement of the liquidated damages on three construction projects in um, Galveston County, Texas. They were three separate land developers, each entered into separate contracts with the bond's principal, R. Hassel Properties, Inc., to perform uh, paving and infrastructure work on the uh, respective uh, residential developments. Hanover issued the, uh, the payment and performance bonds as a surety in favor of these land developers for each of the three projects. The principal defaulted and ceased all business operations. As a result, Hanover paid various claims against the bonds and all of the uh, principal's contract rights were then assigned to Hanover under the terms of the indemnity agreement. Included in these assignment rights to Hanover were, of course, the balances due under each of the three contracts, which amounted to about $570,000. So over several months, Hanover discussed the uh, payment of the contract balances with the land developers to no avail, so Hanover filed suit. In response uh, to Hanover's complaint, the land developers contended that Hanover's damages were offset by liquidated damage provisions in each contract in the amount of $2,500 per day. According to the land developers, they are collectively entitled to offset Hanover's alleged damages by about $900,000 because of completion delays. Hanover moved for partial summary judgment on the defendant's liquidated damage defense, arguing that the liquidated damage clauses were unenforceable penalties. So of course, this is in Texas, so Texas law applies. And under Texas law, damages uh, for contractual breach are limited to just compensation for, law, for loss or damage actually sustained. Texas courts thus carefully review liquidated damages provisions to ensure that they adhere to that principle. If they do not, they amount to enforce unenforceable penalties. To determine whether a liquidated damages provision constitutes an unenforceable penalty, courts must consider two factors. One, whether the harm caused by the breach is incapable or difficult of estimation. And two, whether the amount of liquidated damages called for is a reasonable forecast of just compensation. Even when a liquidated damages provision is properly designed, so to speak, it may still be unenforceable under Texas law when the actual damages incurred were much less than the liquidated damages imposed measured at the time of the breach. And I think if you do the, the research on this, you'll see that that varies from, from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Some, some courts will look, will look at the, you know, the actual damages and, and compare them with the liquidated damages. Other courts will, won't do that at all, but in Texas they do. So in addressing this issue, the court noted that there was no study or analysis undertaken by the land developers when they were establishing the $2,500 a day uh, delay fee. 
the, the liquidated damage clauses were simply leftovers from a form contract. For liquidated damages to be reasonable forecast, Texas courts require that at least some thought be given to calculating the amount of damages. The court also noted that when a significant difference exists between the actual and the liquidated damages, a court must not enforce the liquidated damage provision. So in this case, land developers conceded that the alleged delays did not cause them any actual money damages. So the court observed that, quote, admittedly, the case law is less clear as to what ratio of actual damages to liquidated damages amounts to a, quote, significant difference, unquote. But here the issue is easy. When actual damages are zero and liquidated damages are 900,000, a significant difference exists. Accordingly, the court held that the liquidated damages provisions were penalties, and as such, they were unenforceable. So on August uh, 13, 2018, I gave a Surety Today presentation on the uh, surety and liquidated damages, which explores the issues and defenses to liquidated damage claims, and I, re I recommend that um, podcast to you for a more in-depth discussion on this issue. Cindy, you want to take the next case? Uh, yes. Okay. So the next topic that uh, I noticed had come up a bit uh, recently and one of our favorites because it's always um, a, a challenge has to do with uh, a surety's right to stay uh, Miller Act litigation uh, when there are pending either related state court proceedings uh, or pending or, or near pending or demand for arbitration uh, to go forward. Now, every time I have touched on the issue of sureties and arbitration, and I think there's a lot of uh, articles and presentations done on that, uh, I'm always struck by the, uh, the lack of uniformity in the dis decisions among jurisdictions, uh, there was even uh, situations recently where it was the same parties uh, addressing case, addressing things in different jurisdictions, and the courts came down uh, differently uh, in terms of situations where can sureties be compelled to arbitrate when they're not a party to the underlying uh, contract that contains the arbitration clause? Can a surety as a non-party also nevertheless compel a claimant to arbitrate uh, when it is a non-party to the contract containing the arbitration clause. Uh, I think there's a, a lack of uniformity uh, in the country about this issue. And uh, like everything else related to this topic, uh, when I looked into this just in the very recent cases that have come down, once again, I think there's a lack of uniformity uh, in, in the situation. So the first case that I'm going to look at, uh, discuss is called North Coast Electric Company versus Safari Electric. Uh, it's an opinion that came down in late August from the Western District of uh, Washington. Uh, the claimant here was a supplier to a subcontractor, uh, so a second tier claimant who sued the subcontractor and then the bond principles and their sureties uh, under uh, Miller Act surety bonds. Uh, at the time that the uh, Miller Act litigation was commenced, uh, there was pending state court proceedings. Now, it wasn't clear for me from the 
from the uh, description exactly who was involved in the related pending state court proceedings, uh, but I'm assuming that this supplier was also involved in that case. Uh, so the sureties moved to stay the case due to the pending state court proceedings. Um, it's interesting, the court recognizes all the reasons why a, a stay would make sense. Um, the issue of uh, judicial economy uh, and comedy, and comedy meaning C-O-M-I-T-Y, not comedy, comedy, um, but, but found that under the law of the Ninth Circuit, the court believed that it had no discretion uh, to stay the proceedings uh, where there is a claim where there is exclusive federal court jurisdiction meaning any claim under the Miller Act, because we know from the statute that the Miller Act uh, jurisdiction is exclusively within the federal court. So while the court recognized that there was, would be a lot of value in staying the proceedings, uh, it felt that it did not have uh, the ability to do that. So it denied the motion to stay. It did say that the sureties could refile and ask, and I'm not sure why they would have to refile, ask for a partial stay as opposed to a full stay. I'm not quite sure how that, um, why it couldn't just be done, maybe be granted partial relief, but uh, allowed them to, to make an argument that any state law-based claims that were in this pending federal court case, uh, they could seek stay of those pending state law claims, but not the Miller Act claims. So I don't think that was uh, really of any comfort to, to the surety. Now, I would say that this, this decision goes against the general weight of authority on a surety's ability to seek a stay. Uh, and this was argued to the court and, and cases were cited uh, in support of that position. Um, but the court simply stated that most of the cases that were cited were from other circuits and also that many involved uh, arbitrations and not uh, state uh, litigation proceedings, though the court really didn't explain why an arbitration versus a state court proceeding uh, really made any distinction there. So I was a little confused by that part. But nonetheless, unfortunately, that was not any comfort uh, to the surety in that scenario. Now, uh, there was also a case that came out in June out of the Northern District of California uh, which would also, of course, be the Ninth Circuit, if I've got my jurisdictions correct. Uh, and that case is the new IEM LLC versus Tritechnic, Inc. And here the uh, plaintiff's claimant was also a supplier on a federal project. That case had a wrinkle in the sense that their, uh, the supplier's uh, quote for its work contained a binding arbitration provision, but the purchase order from the contractor did not. So there was a battle of what's the operative contract uh, going on in this situation that uh, did not exist in the other situation. Uh, in this case, both the prime contractor defendant and its surety moved to compel uh, arbitration of the claims. Uh, the supplier had apparently already made an arbitration demand against the prime contractor. However, it disputed that its Miller Act claim against the surety was covered by the arbitration uh, provision. 
Um, interestingly, the court here uh, said that the supplier never raised as a basis for its opposition the potential issue of whether um, an agreement to arbitrate would be a prohibited waiver of the supplier's Miller Act rights, uh, nor did it make an argument that a non-party to an arbitration agreement uh, cannot make such a demand such as a surety. Um, so it's interesting, the court sort of basically said that the you know supplier here whiffed on its uh, arguments, but I would think that the court would have been able to you know, raise that issue itself. But interesting, the court said that, uh, and this is a quote, because I think it's rather an amusing quote, quote, I am punted despite being in a position to put points on the board. Interesting uh, football analogy. So, but anyway, because they punted, uh, the court uh, stayed the Miller Act case pending arbitration, uh, including uh, allowing the arbitrator to decide sort of what the actual underlying contract between the parties uh, actually was. So that that's an interesting uh, sort of difference there out of two cases out of the Ninth Circuit. Now, fortunately, the, the more standard approach uh, was also one that was issued uh, recently in a, in a case in July from the Southern District of Georgia in Superior Steel Inc. versus BI Harbor International subcontractor sued the prime contractor and its Miller Act sureties. The subcontract included an arbitration provision. The prime contractor moved to compel it and stay the Miller Act action. Interestingly, the arbitration clause in that case I thought was interesting actually began saying, quote, unless suit is brought under the Miller Act and then the rest of the arbitration. And even with that language, the court found that it did not bar arbitration of the subcontractor's claims against the prime contractor, and it also granted the motion to stay the case, the Miller Act case pending completion of arbitration. So just in summary there, you know, as usual, there's a muddled mess when it comes to the arbitration field. So I turn it back over to Mike. Okay, thanks. It uh, appears we're out of time, so I'll just close out here. Um, and, you know, want to let everybody know the next uh, surety today will be Monday, November 9th at 1230. Uh, for the past few months, I've, I was telling everybody at, at the surety today uh, presentations that the Northeast Surety and Fidelity Claims Conference, um, you know, had to in person had to be canceled and that we went to a webinar format. And that was held on um, September 24th and 25th. And it was a tremendous response. I mean, we had over 200 people attend the, the two days of webinars from the surety industry. And uh, so we thank you very much for your support on that. If you're in the uh, Philadelphia area, the Philadelphia Surety Claims Association will hold its annual golf outing on October 26th at the Bala Golf Club. Contact me uh, if you, if you want to, um, you know, register or need any more information on that. This is going to be a really nice uh, giveaway pullover jacket. So if, if you're in the area, might want to come out and take advantage of that. So, again, thank you for joining us today, and I will unmute the line if there, see if we have any questions. Okay, we're in talk mode now. All right, everybody, thank you for for uh, calling in, and we'll talk to you again next month. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Surety Today. 
Audio recordings and white papers from prior episodes are available on the Surety Today page of the Wright, Constable, and Skeen website at wcslaw.com backslash surety-today.